Before you get moving, keep hanging with me here near the visitor center to get some useful tips. Now, Jacob Winterstein wrote a humbling, sweet reminder on how connecting to the earth and spirit of each other's legacy is essential to everyday existence in The Land Remembers. The liquid memories that are poured out by Abe, Ox, Stromy, and Mr. Johnson will make you really think if Levittown was supposed to be temporary. To keep up, follow Abe, a.k.a. Nick. No fear, I will not leave your side, but he's the narrator for this tour. If Nick looks to the river or turns down a path, just follow him. Trust me, friend, he knows the way. Anywhere he goes, you can too. Listen, early in the story, there's a hinky turn that will require you to find a hard-to-spot dirt path right behind the Big Brown Hines Refuge sign. I know, I know, Jacob Winterstein takes you to a sexy park and drags you up a driveway. But honey bunny, you will fall in awe of the skyline and wildflowers. All right, time to fire up those feet. Move it, go. Leaving Levittown feels like letting the stale air out of the end of a breath-holding contest. My mom knows I hate Levittown and finds reasons for why we need to go back to the meadows most Sundays, help another family move, pick the vegetables out of an overgrown garden someone had to leave behind, let an old neighbor borrow our car so they can drive around looking for their next place to live. Levittown is temporary, Mom says, and I hope that's true because... The trees are only as tall and thick as baseball bats. And there are no streams, but everybody has a driveway. On the weekend, you can't hear anything but lawnmowers crawling across empty lawns. No one has a bramble fence, or a garden, or a fish-gutting table, a blackberry bush, or a peach tree, or even a worn-down patch of dirt under a rope swing. The houses are all alone on islands of grass. No one shares a wall. The walls are all white. There's no red brick, yellow wood windows, or blue porches. Just black roads, green lawns, and white houses. Levittown is temporary, Mom says. And so is living with Uncle Hirsch. When Uncle Hirsch came home from the war, some guy named G.I. Bill felt bad that my dad, Uncle Hirsch's brother, died. And so he bought Uncle Hirsch a house. And this guy must have been rich because he bought Mom a house, too. But we stayed in the meadows. Mom said we moved from a row home to the old farmhouse with a yard that backed up to the park. Mom had Dad buried in the yard and planted an apple tree instead of a headstone.
Most Sundays, my mom drops me in the park and drives me through what's left of the neighborhood. My name is Abraham. My mom calls me Abe, and my friends in the meadows call me Nick. One day at recess in second grade, I was playing football against Strami and Ox. They scored and started making fun of me. White bread, white bread, you're too soft to stop us. After school, I went home and told my mom that some black kids were making fun of me, calling me white bread. My mom said, well, why don't you call them pumpernickel bread then? So the next day, at recess, they're egging me on. White bread, white bread, want to come play football? And then they start laughing, and I said, shut up, pumpernickel bread. They looked at me like I look at my grandma when she uses Yiddish words. We stood there for a few seconds, and Ox said, What's pumpernickel bread? And I noticed his fists were balled up, and the question sounded like a threat, and I said, It's bread, that's black, and tastes really good. And I can bring y'all a sandwich tomorrow so you can try it. My mom laughed while I made three pastrami sandwiches that night. The next day at lunch, Strami and Ox looked at me like they forgot who I was when I brought them each a pastrami on pumpernickel. Pumpernickel became nickel, and nickel became Nick. Rodney loved the sandwich so much, he became Strami. And Ox has been Ox since kindergarten when he lifted a rock out of the creek that was as big as him. Ox said he jumped over this sign once. I know he's strong, but he's not that strong. Ox is the best kind of strong friend to have. Some strong kids don't know they're strong and will hurt you on the football field by accident. Some know they're strong and will hurt you on purpose. Ox is big and gentle, but isn't afraid to stick up for his friends. He mostly uses his muscles to carry things in and out of the park. Like wildflowers. If Strami and me wanted to bring our moms home some wildflowers, we'd just pick some and bring them home. Ox, though, would fill a bucket of water down at the creek and bring the flowers home with the water. As long as I knew Ox, he was like this. He always does more than anybody asks him to. He was always the kid all the neighbors asked for help moving in a new piece of furniture or doing work in their gardens. After he'd help them, Sometimes they'd shake Ox's hand and put money in it. They knew if they tried to pay him out in the open, he wouldn't take it. Strami would always tell Ox to take the money so they could buy some penny candy from Helmwood Avenue. Strami and Ox were next-door neighbors since they were born. Strami can make a dollar out of 15 cents, so if he could convince Ox to use some of his chore money to buy penny candy, Strami could turn around and sell that candy at school the next day for double. When we played cards, Strami always tried to get us to bet, but we knew that if Strami wants to bet on something like cards, where he can use math, then he's probably going to win. Strami was the smartest kid in our whole school, but he used all of his smarts for food. He'd sell the candy so he could have enough money to buy more candy. He'd boil eggs from his family's chickens and sell them at school with some salt he rolled up in old notebook paper. He'd use the money to buy another chicken so he could kill it for his mom to cook without losing a chicken that made eggs. 
ox ate like a chicken and was as strong as an ox. Strami eats like an ox and is skinny like a chicken's legs. Strami would do his homework while walking home from school, so that by the time he got home, he'd be free to go to the woods and find free things to eat. I just copied off of Strami while we waited for the bell to ring before school. When the sun started to stay high in the sky and the honeysuckles in the schoolyard started to open, we knew that school was about to end and that the mulberries in the park would be ripe. Ox would carry his dad's wooden folding ladder, an old bedsheet, and his bucket into the woods. Along this path, we'd look for the blackberry-stained ground. Or really, Strami would look for the berries and I would just stare at the sky and try not to fall behind. When we found a mulberry tree, Strami would climb the ladder and shake a branch of berries onto the bedsheet. Then he'd handpick the ripe ones that didn't fall. One in the bucket, one in the mouth, was Strami's pace. It used to make us mad, but then one day he wasn't doing it, and we got worried that maybe he was sick. And me and Ox realized that it had been years since we'd been mad about the one in the bucket, one in the mouth. And we started laughing, remembering the time Strami's mom asked us to pick a bucket so she could make mulberry jam. And Strami brought back not even enough for one piece of toast. And we looked up at Strami, and he wasn't laughing. That's when he told us that his parents sold their house to the city. Let's find a spot to hang out by the creek for a little. We can sit on the bench on your right or go down to the banks. The creek is my favorite part of the park. Strami liked the forest, where he could find berries and mustard greens, and Ox liked the pond, where we could build rafts and skip stones. Strami and Ox say I'm lazy, and that's why I like to sit by the creek all day. Mr. Johnson, who's retired and spends all day fishing, says I have an old soul. I don't really know what a soul is, but I know I could sit next to the creek all day, especially if Mr. Johnson is there pressing the yellow dough bait he makes out of cornmeal and maple syrup onto his hook. Mr. Johnson talks like he fishes. He'll throw out an idea and just let it sit there in silence. And I'll respond and try to make sense of what he's saying like a fish, sniffing around his hook. And then if I say something smart, Mr. Johnson starts reeling me into his conversation. Like this one time, Mr. Johnson handed me the pliers he used to get a stuck hook out of a fish. He then asked me, how many different things can you do with those pliers? Then he just sat there. I turned them over in my hands. I said, I could get the hook out of a fish. And he just stared out at his line. I could bend chicken wire with it if I was fixing my mom's coop. Mr. Johnson barely nodded. I could use it to turn a screw if I didn't have a screwdriver. Mr. Johnson said, that's good, what else? I thought of like three more things, 
Each one got Mr. Johnson more excited. Then he said, Remember, a tool only has as many uses as the person holding it. Then he got quiet and casted another line. We probably sat there long enough to notice the tide was going out. A turtle probably came up to sun on a log. An osprey may have bombed the water and came up with a fish. Or not. Mr. Johnson may have caught a carp or a sea monster-looking catfish. I don't remember what happened on the creek that day, because what happened on the creek was always the same, even though it was always exciting and different. I do remember Mr. Johnson telling me something that felt like what people say to me about my dad. I remember him trying to make me feel better, but I didn't know exactly what he meant. He said, look out across the banks. See the leaves and dirt and the branches. That's from the flood we had in the spring. All of this land used to be marshes, and a lot of this land still thinks it is. You see where the bank hangs over the mud like a porch roof? That's where the water is during high tide. But you know that. The land remembers. The land remembers 30 minutes ago, and the land remembers 300 years ago. The land remembers the Lenape, the Indians that lived here before they got pushed out west. And the land remembers the Africans who knew how to make a home and grow rice in any delta or marsh. The ones who saw the cattails growing on the Delaware and knew they were open doors up this creek on their way to freedom. The land remembers the Swedes and the Danish who build the dikes that hold the pond. And they remember the gypsies, the Roma, who could make an old tree into lawn furniture for the whole neighborhood. Mr. Johnson went on and said that if I was good to the land, it would remember me and I could come back to it whenever I wanted. And that no matter what the city did to the meadows, they couldn't take the land's memory. It felt like when people said to me that my dad is always watching me and I can talk to him whenever I want. I don't know if that's all true, but it feels good to think about sometimes. When you're ready, let's go back to the path and keep walking. Don't go back the way you came. Let's take a right on the paved path, and then at the fork, we'll take a left onto the path that has the brown gate, not the silver one. I like to walk under the trees. It feels like the farthest place from the city. The city is a bunch of white men that are always dressed to go to a funeral, and somehow they're more powerful than God. One day, I came home from fishing, and Mom told me to clean up and get dressed in my nice shirt because Ox's mom, Mrs. Franklin, invited us to her church. I knew it wasn't a funeral because everyone on the banks of the Darby would have been talking about who died, shaking their heads like marsh reeds on a windy day. Even though we'd been to Mrs. Franklin's house and Mr. Franklin was the doctor that delivered me 
And of course, Ox and me went to the same school. We never went to the Franklin's church unless it was for a funeral. Heck, even Mrs. Franklin never went to her church. A lot of Sundays, we'd see her in the park picking plants to use as medicine. She'd say things like, God made the trees, and they're the only church I need. When we got to the church, it felt like everyone in the meadows was there. Which was strange, because church was the only thing we didn't share in the meadows. But on this day, there were so many people in the church that there wasn't enough room in the pews. Even a rabbi and the Catholic priest with his funny collar was there. People were quiet, like somebody had died. There were no flowers or coffin or big metal jar, just the city sitting at a long table at the front of the room. My mom and me only went to temple twice a year. But after the first meeting with the city, we started going to a different church every week. Sometimes the city was there, and Mrs. Franklin would stand up and read them a letter they didn't seem to want to hear. When the city wasn't there, the adults would bring in folders of paper that they spread out on a table and looked at like my mom and grandma look at a thousand-piece puzzles on rainy weekends. The meetings got longer, and the adults all started to look tired. During one meeting, Strami Ox and me were pitching pennies up against a wall in the church entryway, and Mrs. Franklin caught us. But she didn't scold us for playing games in church or lecture us about gambling in the Lord's house. She just smiled with her lips, shook her head, and walked away. The next day, we all met up right here on Tinicum Trail. The night before, our parents had all told us the same thing. We only had to come to meetings when the city was there to show them how many people lived in the meadows. But other than that, we could go back to playing in the park. Up here, we're going to take a right at the trash cans and walk past the bridge so I can show you the fort we built. The fort is one of the last things me, Strami, and Ox did together before Strami moved. Ox found the wood down by the railroad tracks near the old hobo camp. Our parents told us to stay away from the hobos, so of course, we didn't. We'd sneak down there some nights and watch them from the edge of the woods. One time, this old hobo saw us and called us over to the fire where he and the other hobos were talking. He pulled the digging side of a shovel off the coals at the edge of the fire. In the shovel were some chopped up hot dogs floating in some mush. The old man offered us some of his dinner and Strami would have eaten it if Ox didn't pinch him in the back of the arm. The hobos just ate their mush, sang along to their friend who played a banjo, and told stories. They were nice, but boring, like most adults, so we didn't hang around for long. Let's go hang out in the fort for a second. We might be able to see some neat birds from the windows. It's more exciting than hobo songs. It's a little dark, but... You get used to it. 
Adults being boring is part of why we built this fort. After a lot of church meetings, our parents would come home with different neighbors and sit around talking about the city. Mom looked how she looked when she stopped getting telegrams from dad when he was fighting in the war. If I was in the house or the backyard when the neighbors came over, mom would call after me every five seconds to grab Miss So-and-so a glass of water or fetch Mr. Somebody a peach from the basket in the kitchen. So one night, when I was practicing casting in the backyard, I saw a bunch of neighbors come by with their folders, so I snuck out. I thought I would get in trouble, but when I came home late that night, all my mom asked was, Were you out with your friends? Did you have fun? Our first time hanging out in the woods all night was exciting. It was a full moon, and we went into the long clearing back there and played a whole game of football. Ox was the steady quarterback. Stromy dropped what would have been a tying touchdown. He said he lost it in the moon because it was too bright. But it really was so bright that we could play a game of cards without a fire or flashlight. Later that month, when the moon went away, the woods opened up. They went from something that would hold us to something that would swallow us. Like when the ringmaster put his head in that lion's mouth at the circus last year. It was one thing to play football under the bright moon, but it was different sitting still there in the dark. That's why we built the fort. Some place where we could look into the forest, but the forest couldn't look into us. The walls quieted the strange night sounds, enough that we could relax. We chose this spot next to the water so nothing could sneak up on us from that side. We played cards and pitched pennies and told scary stories. One night, Ox carried in some old chairs that the neighbors left behind when they moved. We curled up in those big, soft chairs. I leaned my back up against one armrest and hung my feet over the other. I fell asleep to Strami talking about what he was going to have for breakfast and woke up a few minutes later or a few hours later to him talking about the same thing. I started laughing. Then Ox started laughing and then Strami started laughing until all of us were just laughing at the sounds of our laughs. When we finally calmed down, our faces were wet with tears. I turned on my dad's army flashlight and we all walked home. Come out of the fort and keep walking. When you get to the bridge, stop for a second. Stromy's family was the first to move off their block. Stromy said his mom said the city offered them so much money they could buy a house next to the woods in Mount Airy. A lot of other blocks, though, had nothing left. Not even the houses. The city bulldozed them, and it was like walking on this footbridge. You had to walk down the middle of the street because on the sidewalks was piles of bricks and wood. On the bulldoze blocks, the sky was big like this, but this sky used to make me imagine things. Like clouds were animals, or that the birds were big as planes. The big sky on the bulldoze blocks just felt like too much. Like seeing my grandma pick apples from my dad's grave tree. Like, I know it's the same sky and that my grandma picks fruits for her wines from all kinds of trees, but 
Something about her at her son's tree and the big sky in the middle of the neighborhood was too much. The city didn't bulldoze Strami's house. They just broke the windows and took off the front door and let it sit there. Ock said that his mom said it was punishment for everyone else who wouldn't leave. Let's keep going. We're going to take a left when we get to the end of the bridge, and then a right, and walk down through the path, through the woods. Don't walk towards that bench unless you're tired and want to take a break. Sometimes it's just good to let things be quiet. Let's take a left at the asphalt. You can imagine getting on Ox's raft. Last time I saw Ox, we got on this raft and paddled across the pond. By then, Me and Mom were already living in Levittown. The city had come over and told Mom it was her duty to let them have her house. Told her they knew my dad was a soldier and that she should respect the laws he fought for. Mom tried to explain it to me, that the city could take your house if they had an idea for something better, but I can't see how a bunch of empty houses and piles of bricks is better than the meadows. Ox said his mom said she would never leave her house. Ox said the city offered her pennies for her house. Said it wasn't worth nothing because it was next to Strami's house. And no one would want a house next to an empty one with broken windows and animals living inside of it. Mrs. Franklin convinced a whole bunch of her neighbors to stay on their block. But she couldn't convince Mr. Franklin. Ox said his dad said he needed to go where babies were being born, and that no one was going to have a baby in what was left of the meadows anytime soon. He took Ox up to West Philly. Last time me and Ox were floating on this raft, I asked him what West Philly was like. He said the first time a white boy called him black was when I called him pumpernickel bread. He said the second was the day after he moved to West Philly, when a police officer grabbed him by the collar. The third time, a week later, when his dad tried to buy a house near us in Levittown. We stopped paddling right here and just let the raft float. It barely moved. I looked back towards the meadows, at the part of the pond I imagine has always looked the same. Ox looked the other way, towards the airport. He wondered if flying felt like sitting on a raft. If sitting on the air felt like sitting on the water. I asked Ox why the pond was his favorite part of the park. He said it's like an outdoor movie theater that never plays the same picture twice. 
like the time we saw two bald eagles attack that big bird with a fish in its claws. Or the time we saw a bird as big as a plane take off from behind a clump of cattails. Or the time we saw a bird that wasn't even bigger than my fist chase a hawk over the lake and past the trees. The last time Ox and me were here, we laid so still on this raft that the small birds forgot we were here and landed right next to us. That day, when the sun went and hid behind the trees, Ox picked up his paddle. It felt like he just had to pull the paddle through the water twice to take us from the middle of the pond all the way back to the banks. Let's go straight ahead down by the creek and see if Mr. Johnson comes by to fish today. I wonder if when Mr. Johnson said the land remembers, if he meant the pond and the creek too, or if he just meant the dirt underneath it all. I wonder if I have to see something in the land to know it remembers. Like how Mrs. Jackson says when you see butterflies, angels are around you. Will the mulberry trees drop its fruit in a special way for Stromy? If the land remembers ox, will it show a special pattern in the duckweed that rests on top of the pond? If the creek remembers me, will it show it in the mud that only comes out at low tide? I always liked the way that mud squished under my feet. And what did Mr. Johnson mean by if I was good to the land, it would remember me? I think I was good to the land. I never throw any trash in it. I didn't dig up the dirt to build a pipe like the oil company did. I only killed one squirrel with my slingshot. And honestly, that was an accident. I only took home as much fish as we could eat. I keep coming back to the river to ask Mr. Johnson what he meant, but no one has been in the park the last few times I was here. I don't know if Mr. Johnson would answer my question anyway. We can sit here for a little bit more, or maybe we should go back to the road and take a left. My mom will probably be back soon. This road that leaves the park reminds me of the road outside our old house in the meadows. I like the way it crunches when you walk and sounds like a fire crackling when you drive on it. The last time mom picked me up at the end of this road, she had a small bucket of apples from my dad's tree. She said it was probably the last of the season, but maybe she'll have some today. After this adventure. But one thing is certain, I could definitely go for a bite into a juicy apple. What's your favorite? 
Mine is the back-biting tart of a freshly picked green apple. You know, healthy with a switch of sass. There was so much to learn throughout this trail. How did this experience stick with you?